0: Well, good morning again, and I just want to encourage you to make plans to be with us on the 17th. We've got a big program that we're planning, this Christmas celebration, different musical offerings, and of course, a celebration of our Savior. And one of the ways we're going to mark that celebration, if you notice in your bulletin, there's a handout. We mentioned it last week, but not everyone was here last week. This is something that we want to do this year to be a blessing to our community. And so next Sunday, we're going to bring an in-gathering. And so you have a shopping list here. As you go out shopping this week, you can take the list, maybe add an item or two that we're going to collect, and we're going to give as offerings to two ministries in town that serve the underprivileged, the Rescue Mission and the Hope Center. And we're doing this in cooperation and conjunction with our school as well. The school will have an in-gathering on Friday, and so next Sunday, at some point during the service, we're going to have tables and boxes up front. And so we want you to bring, if you, as you purchase during the week, set it aside, mark on it for the in-gathering offering. And during the service, as a symbol of all that we have belonging to the Lord, we're actually going to physically come forward and present our gifts to the Lord, and singing in joyful offering and thanksgiving, and all that is collected will be boxed up and brought over to the rescue mission and the Hope Center. And the reason why we're doing this is we want to just have a tangible reminder that everything that we have comes from the Lord and that the blessings that we receive in the harvest of our life we're to share with those around us. And so remember that list this week, we'll be sending out reminders during the week. If you come next week and you forgot, we're gonna keep collecting until the following Wednesday and then we'll bring it all over on that Wednesday. But even if you do forget next week, we're all still gonna come forward as a symbolic Offering of ourselves and of our church community to the Lord in a service and of love to our community. So remember the gathering next week. If you've not already had the opportunity, please make sure your cell phones are turned to silent as we prepare to enter into time of, of God's Word, not have any distractions as it goes out online. With that, good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being with us. On behalf of all of us here, we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wish you were here, but glad that you are still with us as we gather around the Word of God this morning. Dr. David Livingston was a famous explorer who discovered and made known to the world many of the secrets of the African continent. He spent years navigating rivers and exploring valleys, mapping out the land, and making many discoveries about the people and the vast resources of the African continent. His love for the people... Was legendary he was welcomed wherever he went and when he died which he did in the land of africa his body was embalmed and wrapped and sent back for burial to england the land of his birth however before that process his heart was removed and was buried in the village of chipundo located in the modern country of zambia at the foot of a tree Locals dug a hole and placed in it the heart of this man whom they loved and respected. And later, a memorial stone was put there dedicated to this man who had given his life so that the world would have a greater understanding of the African people. But I wonder, Dr. Livingstone's heart was laid in the place he truly valued. If your heart was buried in the place that you most loved during life, where would it be? In a bank vault somewhere, in a place down at the office, in a bedroom, next to a tree, where is your heart today? For what we truly live for is that which has a hold on our heart. And that's the main point that Jesus addresses in our passage this morning. He's responding to a question about eternal life, and he points to the need to perfectly keep the law. And when his listener thinks he's doing okay in that regard, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the human heart, what controls the heart of this man. And it's a good question for all of us to consider. For what has a grip on our hearts is what we truly serve and what we worship in our lives. Well, that is our introduction. I invite you, if you're able, to stand once again as we honor God through the reading of his word, our passage this morning is Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22. And the holy and truthful word of God says, And behold, a young man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord given to us as a test of where our hearts are this morning. May we receive it for its intended intentions. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, indeed, as we turn to you this morning and as we sit under the authority of your word, we need the work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit to sound us out in the depths of our hearts and the depths of our minds that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and wills to receive and do what you're teaching us through your word. And so, Father, in these holy moments as we are in your presence, would you banish all distracting thoughts? Would you guide us and teach us by your spirit as we pray in Jesus' name? Amen. As you follow along in your sermon outline or on the church app, and those of you at home taking notes, we begin with our first major point, a great question. A great question, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now you recall in the context, Jesus is on his way, heading south. He's crossed around the Sea of Galilee or over the Jordan River. He's now on the eastern side of the Jordan River, heading south where eventually they'll cross back over the river into the land of Judea. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's been on this trip, we've noticed that he has been met by several different groups. The Pharisees that came and wanted to know what his teaching was on marriage and divorce. There were parents that brought their children so that he might bless them. And so Jesus goes into great depth to explain God's view on marriage and divorce and singleness in children. We've taken a few weeks to look at those passages we've seen that Jesus is not afraid to be interrupted, for he knows that all that happens in his life is happening under the control of the Father, under the guidance of the Spirit. And here, there's another interruption. But notice the difference. When children were brought to Jesus, this brought some angst to the disciples. Why are you getting in the way of the real ministry of the Master? And Jesus said, don't hinder them, let them come. Because it's children... What children represent this childlike, dependent faith on God for all things. Only those will enter the kingdom of heaven. And we'll see that that's a contrast with the one that comes to Jesus this morning. If we put together the parallel accounts of what we find in the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Matthew, we see that this is a young man of means... So he's wealthy, he's a ruler of some sort, which means he has connections with the Pharisees, he has influence over the culture, if you will, he has a sense of personal righteousness, he has an interest in the law. He's probably well-connected, and those well-connections that he has, those good connections, would allow him then to gain wealth and influence. And so We're being set up already in light of what Jesus has said that we must be as children in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. Now we have an example of what Jesus warned against a few chapters earlier when he said, come and follow me and forsake all. You remember back in Matthew 16, Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give? in return for his soul. And here we have a a man coming that will be a living example of that dichotomy, will you go this way and live, will you go that way and lose. According to the account, as we find it in Mark's gospel, this man rushes up to Jesus and kneels down before him. But this time, no mention is made of the disciples to try to shoo him away. After all, if you're building a kingdom, this is the kind you want. He's young, he's educated, he's dynamic, he's rich. You want him to come? That's what your main ministry is, not these children. And so once again, Jesus is going to have to correct their understanding. He does come with some sort of spiritual hunger. But as we discern very quickly, he comes with a sense of self-righteousness and an elevated view of his own spiritual ability and achievements. He's aware that there's something that he's lacking, and so he's seeking assurance of salvation. And that will be the reason why this conversation with Jesus takes place. Now, in itself, it's not a bad thing to be, to be worried about the status of one's eternal soul. After all, what could be more important? If we live but just a few decades in this realm, and then we die, and then we face judgment, and that judgment is eternal? Yes, it is a very serious thing to consider the status of one's soul. But that search should not be used as a cover for self-righteousness, for self-sufficiency. And that's what we find in this man this morning. He runs up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, if we look at the parallel accounts in Mark and in Luke, it says he referred to Jesus as good teacher, but Matthew doesn't. Remember, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And he wants to be careful in the use of language about goodness and justice and righteousness and virtue because ultimately he wants the attention to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ who has come as the Savior from God. Jesus knows who he is and he knows what he's going to do. And we have a master display of wisdom this morning in how to evangelize someone who is a little bit too uppity and a little bit too self-righteous. He comes to him and notices that he asks Jesus about what is good. I find that interesting, and we could explore that further, but let's move on. He asks the question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, he's betraying some serious misunderstanding about the nature of salvation. We hear it all the time. What must I do to live forever? What must I do to get to heaven? How much is enough so that I can have God's approval? I hope my good deeds can outweigh my bad deeds. People spend so much time and effort and energy and expense going on pilgrimages, giving offerings, having sacrifices, somehow trying to earn or buy or achieve their own way into heaven. What must I do to merit heaven? How different that is from the example that Jesus gave that those must receive heaven, must receive it as a child. A child who comes as helpless, knowing that unless the parent provides, he won't have anything. Jesus has come to announce the kingdom of heaven. He knows that he is the king in this kingdom. He's inaugurated, he's brought it in. Of course, we won't see it in its fullness until he returns. But he has already said several times, it is only through humility, through deep trust in the Father, who has sent Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, that one can enter heaven. It's not through the accomplishment of any good thing that we think we can do. But this man asks, what good deed must we do? Must he do? He has a sense of the law. He knows that the law has certain requirements. Do this, don't do that. As a good Pharisee, he should have known that to even ask the question is the wrong question because the Pharisee was expected because he had an honor of God's law to just follow all of them. He thinks he's following the law. He also understands that there's something that's still lacking. He thought that salvation came from doing. And what could he do to procure it? He wants to do something that would somehow put God under obligation to save him. But God will be a debtor to no man. What does God ever owe man except to be himself as righteous and just and true and honest? So we start with a good question, and yet it's a misguided question. What must I do? And so Jesus is going to need to test him. He's going to need to lead him to reveal what's actually going on on the inside in his own life. And so now we have the godly response, a godly response. And Jesus will test him. And in verse 17, he he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? It's as if he's asking the question, what is the standard for good? How do we know what is good? Where do we find the source of good? Jesus knows he's not one of these man's religious teachers. He's not a member of the Sanhedrin. He's not a Pharisee. Why do you ask me? And what's interesting is he refers to Jesus as teacher. And we might think, well, that's a good thing. And on one hand, it's a good thing. Jesus is a teacher. Until we realize that in the gospel, according to Matthew, it is only those who are outside the kingdom of heaven who refer to Jesus as teacher. Those that are in the kingdom of heaven refer to him as Lord, Savior, Master, Messiah, other things. So, it's a clue, it's a hint from Matthew that this man is not yet a believer, and he's trying to, and we understand from the context as well, he's trying to see what he must do to be a believer, to be in heaven. And so, Jesus will ask him about God and goodness. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Now, Jesus knows who he is, he knows where he's come from, he knows what he's come to do, he knows that God alone is good. He also knows that he is God in the flesh who has come, he knows that he is good. He came to fulfill the law and the prophet. Remember, he came to fulfill the law and the prophet. This man is coming and saying, what must I do to earn eternal life? Jesus knows that it's his perfection alone that saves us upon faith and repentance and what he has done. It's only what he has done. It's what we celebrate at the table this morning. It is his perfect work that allows we who are completely imperfect to have a righteous standard before God. We are not, by nature, good. None of us are good. God alone is good. In comparison to God, which is the only comparison we can truly make, we fall far short of the glory of God, eternally short of the glory of God. And a good tree cannot produce, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, and we're bad trees by nature. And so we need to understand that first, the bad news, as it were, so that we will truly grasp what it is that is the good news. And that's what the gospel is. That's what we celebrate, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So we have this strange encounter, this man who is seeking to save himself, to earn eternal life on his own, asking about salvation from the one who is truly sinless. From the one who had truly fulfilled the law and the prophets, from the one of whom it was said, he came to save his people from their sins. So in this godly response, Jesus, still testing this young man, says, keep the commands. If you would enter life, Jesus said, keep the commandments. Now there are several phrases in Matthew 19 that mean about the same thing. To have eternal life, or to enter life, or if you would be perfect, or to have Treasure in heaven. They're all referring to this eternal life in the presence of the Heavenly Father. They all point to the same thing, giving a little different nuance so that we get a fuller picture of what what is it that happens to us when God saves us. To enter into eternal life is to follow Jesus in childlike faith throughout one's life. But we need to be careful that we do not turn God into merely a transaction. We can present the gospel in such a way that we make it simply a transaction. I do this, God does this, done. I can go off and live the way I want. But eternal life is not a one and done thing. Eternal life, think about it, eternal life is to enter into an eternal relationship with the living one. John 17, Jesus said this is eternal life that they might know you, the one true God, and the one that you've sent, Jesus Christ yes at a moment in time when we repent and we believe and we are born again we leave the realm of the world as it were to enter into the realm of the kingdom of heaven but biblically speaking eternal life is the continuation of that ongoing relationship with the living one that always results in transformation always results in bearing fruit always results in greater obedience to the lord And so beware of the one who said, when I was five, I made a decision and for 90 years lived like the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Bible knows of no such decision. Jesus said, follow me. Jesus bid us come, die to self, walk in his way. And it's a continuation. It's an ongoing process. It's a growing process as God draws us in and into faith in Christ and he watches over us and he guides us and he molds us and he grows us and spiritual fruit is produced in our lives and then one day he safely brings us to the shores of heaven eternal life is all about this eternal eternal relationship that we have with God and so it begins with God, it continues with God it's empowered by God, it grows in God as we have this faithful loving dependency of growing and growing and growing until he calls us home so jesus brings him back and says god is good there's only one that is good you want to enter life keep the commandments but if you're going to keep the commandments you need to remember that it's all of god and there are those who would say i hope i do enough i hope i can do just enough I've talked to many people over over my many years in ministry, and I talked to them, if today you were to die and you were to face God, he would ask you the question, why should I let you into heaven? And they say, well, because I hope I've done enough. And the response is, friend, you haven't. But there is someone that has done enough. So Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Not just one or two, not the easy ones. Keep all of them all the time, for if you want to enter life, you have to have a the righteousness equal to God the Father. Because he said it's only perfection that will enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's at that point that we all fall down before the throne of grace and say, oh God, have mercy. Because we know we cannot be perfect. But we know the one who is. And in that great exchange, God takes our sin, takes our rebellion, takes our wickedness, places it on Christ. And then takes his righteousness and his perfection and places it on us. And God looks at us and said, yes, I see my son. I said, look at him through the eyes of Jesus. Are you in that place this morning where you are hidden in the righteousness of Christ? Knowing that it is only his righteousness that can carry you to heaven. So after we get this godly response, keep the commands, we get an awkward reply. This man has come with the idea that he's almost good enough to get to heaven on his own. There's just one thing that's lacking. He's just looking for that one thing, that that one feat, that one act, that one achievement that could assure him of eternal life. He's not sure what it is, and so he asks the strange question. Jesus has said, want to enter life? Keep the commandments. He said to Jesus, which ones? He's persistent. He's trying to play chess with God, and get to heaven on his own terms. Yeah, I need to obey the commandments, but which ones? There's more here than meets the eye. And the Old Testament, there were 613 specific commandments that the people had to fulfill. All of them, all the time, if they wanted to save themselves by their own righteousness. Now, Jesus doesn't give a list of 613. He gives a list, a partial list of the top ten, of the Ten Commandments, which form the foundation of all of the others. And you may recall that when God gave Moses the tablets of the law, the two tablets, that the first tablet was approximately the tablet about God and the second one was about how we deal with man, and they were approximately half and half. So on the first tablet of the law, we, how we deal with God Know God above him, honor his name, do not blaspheme his name, honor his day. All, the first tablet is dealing with our relationship with God. On the second tablet, it's with our relationship with men. And so Jesus is going to test him further. He's only thinking of himself, so Jesus is going to test him by those commandments that deal with that second tablet of the law dealing with men. And Jesus said to him, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus does not begin with what's on the first tablet, dealing with his relationship with God, this man's relationship with God, but on the second tablet, his relationship with man. He thinks he's doing okay, and Jesus wants to challenge him by giving him commands that are, at least in large measure, easier to see, easier to determine if one is in fact living out those commands. So Jesus has given the, and not in the, the order that we find them in the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Exodus, but we have the sixth commandment: "You shall not murder." The seventh commandment: "You shall not commit adultery." The eighth: "You shall not steal." The ninth: you "Shall not bear false witness." The fifth. Honor your father and mother. And then, just for good measure, adds the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives them five commands. He doesn't even give them all in the two tablets of the the law, much less the 613 that are scattered all throughout the Old Testament. He gives them five and the golden rule. He's challenging his lifestyle towards men, towards his brother, towards his neighbor, and Jesus knows that he's already spoken on these issues. Remember, we have to go all the way back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus already talked about these things, saying, The heart of the matter is the matter of the human heart. Do not murder. That means don't be angry in your heart with your brother. Do not commit adultery. That means do not look lustfully upon another person. Tell the truth when it's painful or when it's easy. Don't covet your neighbor's goods. Jesus already explained that this is a heart problem at the heart of the problem. And in some ways, these outward commands are easier to observe. Are people following them? Here's a checklist of what to do, what not to do. If you would enter life, keep these commands. And then after we've seen a strange question, we followed up with a silly response. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What still do I lack? The emphasis in the original language puts the word all at the beginning. All, all of them I have kept. No worries, he says to Jesus, I've done all of them. And here we see the wisdom of Jesus. He knows that's not even remotely true. He knows the scriptures, Jesus does. He's the fulfillment of them. Jesus knows about the doctrine of original sin, that we're all born in sin, we are sinners by nature, that we're all bent against God from our birth until we have the new birth that comes only through the Spirit of God. And even after we're redeemed and we're with Christ, even the best of our efforts are still tainted by sin in the flesh. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. And who of us has ever loved his neighbor? as he loves himself now the apostle Paul made a similar claim the apostle Paul would have been another educated, influential scholar, a Pharisee of Pharisees he made a similar claim about his own life before he met Christ as he shares his testimony in Philippians chapter 3 he said, well I was circumcised on the 8th day like every good Jewish boy I was of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There must have been something going on among the Pharisees where they saw that somehow they could be blameless before the law. This young man makes a similar claim. But notice that Jesus doesn't challenge him at that point. It wouldn't have been very difficult for Jesus to say, let's take a moment, shall we? Let's just pick one of the commands that I gave you. And let's analyze your life. What have you done with heart, soul, mind, and strength? In every situation, and every occurrence, have you really fulfilled that law? He could have pointed out a myriad of sins that that man had committed that day. He knew that this man was not sinless. But you see, he wants to bring this man to that awareness of himself that he's not sinless. So that he'll recognize that the real issue is with his heart, not with his outward obedience. He has another plan. He wants him to understand what is it that has a grip on his heart. Because what has a grip on his heart is what he's serving with his life. This man says, what do I still lack? I've kept the law, but I'm not sure that I'm saved. But he's ignoring the bigger issue, isn't he? His true position before God. It's still all about Him. He's self-focused, He's self-absorbed. What can I do? He doesn't yet understand. He claims to be a Pharisee or claims to be a young ruler that would know the scriptures. He he doesn't quite understand the holiness of God. And in the holiness of God, who is perfect in all his ways and who demands perfection if anyone is to enter the kingdom of heaven, that even one sin against an eternally holy God requires divine wrath and punishment. If he knew the scriptures as he claimed, he would know about the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. One sin that got them thrown out of the kingdom. One sin that plunged all of creation into rebellion against God. One sin that caused the chaos that this world has known ever since. This is a misguided answer. It's an awkward reply. It's a silly response. All these I have kept. The good news is only good until we realize our complete helplessness before God. Then it's good. And so Jesus is going to hit him hard when he gives him a challenging command. Now he gets to the real issue what's in this man's heart? what was he truly serving and so he says if you would be perfect now the word as it's used in the original language has the idea of maturity it has the idea of completion of growing an understanding of seeing the the wisdom of god applied in our actions so that in our head heart and hands it is manifested more and more it's maturing in our understanding and it's required by all who follow christ Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that mirror of the law continually reflects back at us so that we see we can't do it. It must be a work of God. The goodness of man is a relative thing. It's a subjective thing. It's a changing thing. The goodness of God is flawless, perfect, unchanging. There's only one who is perfect. There's only one who is good. To be perfect is to have God give us a new heart through the new birth, taking out our heart of rebellious stone and giving us a heart of flesh so that we'll love the law of God and want to please him. It's a divine action because this is divine work. And so Jesus says, sell it all. If you would be perfect, Jesus said, Go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Give everything away that you have. He would know that under the law, generosity was required. The law said to be generous to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien in the land. There were numerous tithes that were collected and if we put them all together, it's far over 30% of one's income, maybe approaching half according to the year. It was to remind them that all that they had was from God and that it was to be used at his disposal to take care of the needs among the people of God. So you sell it all and then find true treasure in heaven. Notice the action verbs. Sell, give, have. This is an image that means to live for that which truly matters, for that which will honor God so that God can honor such a life. This man said, I've loved my neighbor all these things I've kept. Really? Had he used his material resources at every turn to meet the needs of his fellow Israelites? Or had his wealth become his identity, his purpose, his power, his influence? To truly live, Jesus says, he must exchange living for his earthly possessions so that he would have the wealth of knowing the one true God. So when Jesus says, get rid of everything, he, he's saying, get rid of all that controls your heart. Because if you get rid of all that you have in your earthly possessions, where are you now? You are now completely dependent upon the Heavenly Father to depend for or to, to give you all that you need. And isn't that what's required to get into heaven? Is this complete dependence on the Father? Total dependence that He is the one who guides and provides and gives. Placing our trust in Him alone for forgiveness and for provision and protection and eternal life. And only the one who loves God, trusts Him, is saved. And then once He has entered the kingdom of heaven, He is able to display that love of God to others and faithful stewardship and good management of what He has been given. But to this particular man, His heart is still completely given to something else. So He says, Sell it all. And follow me. Verse 21. And come, follow me. Get rid of that which has control of your heart. So Jesus now is starting to move the man from the requirements of the second tablet of the law. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Love your neighbor as yourself. And now he's starting to move them to the first tablet of the law, which is what? Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no other gods before me. Nothing is to be allowed to compete with our allegiance to God. This follow me command is really just a summary of the gospel, of denying ourselves, of taking up the cross to follow him, dying to our former way of life, dying to the way where we were in control of all things, and living so that he is in control of all things. To turn away from the serving of lesser gods that can lead us nowhere, to living for the one true God who leads us to eternal life. Turning to the one who says, I am the forgiver of sins. I am the redeemer. I am the Lord. Die to your own way of living that you might truly live. And the emphasis is on follow me. Follow me. Jesus makes it hard. He doesn't settle for half measures. All the times we're warned about a divided heart. He wants us to have a pure heart, a heart that has been changed by him so that our heart is devoted to him. And think about it this way. We talked about marriage in recent weeks. Think about it this way. A wife who is 85% of the time faithful to her husband is an unfaithful spouse. In the same way, we cannot be half-hearted towards God. So Matthew 10 Jesus had already warned that his disciples would have to do what he had done. They'd have to become like him. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant his master. The one who went to the cross for sinners has a right to claim that those same sinners forsake all and follow him. This wholehearted response of throwing off the former way of living put on the new way of living that we might truly enter into life so the apostle paul understood this after boasting about all the things that he could do and how it failed him he even called it rubbish he goes on to say in philippians 3 but whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing work of knowing christ jesus my lord For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's the gospel. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This young man's problem was his covetousness. It was his greed it was putting his hope in what he had done. It was trusting in his wealth. He had a mechanical obedience to the law, but he was trusting in what he could do. And there was something else that held priority in his heart. His wealth had become an idol that he was serving, instead of having that wealth serve him in the ways of God. That was a typical thought in those days that if you had means, that meant that you had God's blessing. But that's not necessarily true. Time and again, Jesus shows us that wealth is often an impediment to gaining eternal life. The one who runs after all that he can get now and even gains a lot that he can have now and has no desire for heaven will find out too late that there was so much more he could have had in Christ. We don't want to wear ourselves out running after wealth. We want to walk with Jesus and keep up with him and follow him And obey him. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. So as one commentator looks at these verses. He said Jesus demands not alms. But everything. This young man was not willing to meet that demand. And so we see a sad conclusion. Verse 22. When the young man heard this. He went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. The Lord Jesus Christ gave him a test. Do you love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? And if you love God, do you love neighbor? And he had not fulfilled the second tablet of the law, nor had he obeyed the first tablet of the law. He loved something else greater than God. He's at a crossroads. Lose it all and live forever and enjoy the bounty of heaven or enjoy the bounty of this life and say it's too costly to give up and then end up losing everything. He knows what he must do. He must abandon everything to find true life. But he couldn't do it. Charles Spurgeon said, this man's great possessions so possessed him that he never possessed his own soul. Think about this. He had rushed up to Jesus to learn what is the one thing I must do to eternal eternal life. And Jesus gave him the one thing he must do. And he wouldn't do it. He was not willing to do it. Perhaps he believed the lie that he who dies with the most toys wins. No, the one who dies with the most toys has only piled up greater judgment on himself before a holy God if he lived for those toys. This young ruler desired the mere treasures of this earth over the treasures of heaven. But which ones last forever, my friends? Consider well where your heart is. He had heard about eternal life that day, and he walked away. But my friends, today, you have the opportunity. You've heard about eternal life, and you can walk towards it. The one who trusts in the Lord with childlike faith will experience the true riches of eternal life. At the end of the service, I'm going to remain down front. God is tugging on your heart because you know but there's something else there that has first place over Christ. Let's go to the Lord together. Do you own your stuff? Or does your stuff own you? Would you be willing to give up everything to gain everything that you can have in Christ? Or will you hold on to your earthly treasures? at the risk of losing true treasures in heaven. Dr. R.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop in the Church of England in the 1800s. He was known as a preacher of holiness, and he followed the liturgy of his day, which said, among other things, in all time of our wealth, good Lord, deliver us. May our hearts never be gripped by the things of this world to the point where Christ no longer has a hold of our hearts. Next week, we're going to find that even the apostles were astonished and perplexed by this response. They're going to learn about the snares of riches. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away from today? Well, knowing that God alone is good, we look to him to empower us to obey his word and his will. It is a good thing to serve the living God. It is a precious thing to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Second, because the fruit reveals the root, we will ground our obedience upon the righteousness and truth of Christ. May our testimony always be what God has done for us in Christ. Thirdly, because God is to be our greatest treasure, we ask him to reveal and root out whatever competing affections that lurk in our hearts. You see, when our hearts are set free to worship the Lord it is then that we can truly enjoy the blessings that the Lord has given us because now we have them in their proper balance. Now we have the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to enable us to love our friends, to love our families, to serve one another because it comes from being rooted in Christ and we can love them in their proper perspective of God above all. But God above all, living in me, allows me to do all things according to his power and his will. Because Jesus left heaven to redeem us, we gladly put all else in its proper place to follow him as he commands us to do. I want you to think about this passage this week. We're celebrating this joyful time of the Lord coming into the world, and there was a reason why we needed the Lord to come into the world. May you be able to sing this Christmas season. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. Let us pray. Father, we turn to you and we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows us better than we know ourselves, gets to the heart of the matter so that we would find ourselves just crying out to you and turning to you and say, oh God, unless you have mercy, we're undone. But Father, thank you that when we cry out, you hear, and you have mercy, and that forgiveness is lavish and rich and abundant and full, and you bid us to to walk with you and to keep following you, and you have promised us a rich inheritance in, in the life to come, because we will behold our Savior face to face and see the true riches of life. So, Father, help us to live this day and each and every day that you give us in light of that day so that our lives will truly have been a glorious offering to you. It's to that end we pray for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.